Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today we're going to talk about the incredible saga of a huge factory farm called Circle Four Farms, the animal activists who broke into it and obtained unbelievable video, and the legal fallout that followed. You probably know that we delve into legal questions not that infrequently on Animals Today. And this sequence of events is especially interesting because it raises the issue of whether breaking the law is acceptable or legitimate or even desirable or heroic in the service of animal advocacy and protection. Circle Four Farms is a huge hog-producing operation in Milford, Utah. It consists of 300 barns stretching over 20 miles. Undercover video by the group Direct Action Everywhere, and which came to be referred to as Operation Death Star, was obtained in December 2017. This video was extraordinary because it was filmed in 360-degree virtual reality style to capture all the horrible details and provide a seriously impactful document. It showed rows and rows of mother pigs crammed in too tightly, and on the floor below those rows of pigs are piglets, some alive, some deceased, and covered in feces. When those five activists broke into Circle Four Farms in December 2017, they intended to merely expose the poor conditions in which Smithfield Foods, the largest pork producer in the world, treated their pigs at Circle Four Farms, which processes about one million pigs per year. They did not expect, but they encountered one piglet struggling with a nasty infection on her foot and another piglet with its face covered in lesions, unable to feed. And when they saw these two piglets, they knew they had to rescue them. You can watch the short film called Operation Death Star on YouTube. It's as real as can be. And you can watch two of the activists, Wayne Song and Paul Darwin Picklesheimer, in the factory and rescuing these piglets. So there are two notable facts here. Wayne and Paul rescued two piglets that would have otherwise been disposed of by Smithfield Foods, the owners of the pigs, and they also stole them. The three other activists that infiltrated Circle Four Farms took plea deals, but Wayne and Paul did not. They faced trial in October 2020 in Washington County, Utah, charged with two three-degree felony counts of burglary and a Class B misdemeanor count of theft. This incident raises the question, when is the law worth breaking on behalf of animals? And this question is not a new one. A major point of contention for activists converges at universities and research labs that test on animals. In 2004, Animal Liberation Front activists broke into a University of Iowa to free hundreds of animals from the psych labs. In the process, they smashed equipment and spray-painted walls, causing $400,000 in damage. Incidents like this have gotten more personal in recent years. Rather than targeting universities or companies, protesters have turned their gazes on the individuals conducting the experiments. A study titled The Threat of Extremism to Medical Research analyzed 220 illegal incidents reported between 1990 and 2012. From 1990 to 1999, 61% of the incidents reported involved universities, while only 9% targeted individuals. Then between 2000 and 2012, that number drastically changed. Only 13% of incidents in this time period targeted universities, and incidents that targeted individuals rose to 46%. And here are a few examples. In 2006, UCLA professors were pressured by late-night mask 
protesters who banged on their doors and threw firecrackers at their houses. They would yell things like, we know where you sleep, send threatening emails, and make threatening phone calls. The intimidation tactics escalated to leaving three firebombs at researchers' front doors. One out of three actually went off, charring a home. In addition, one professor's home was flooded when a protester turned on a garden hose and shoved it through a broken window. In 2008, a website leaked the names, email addresses, home addresses, phone numbers, and photos of researchers working at UC Berkeley Labs. The site encouraged people to put pressure on the individuals listed to end their animal testing research, but did not encourage anyone to pursue illegal activity in the process. But even so, a group of protesters gathered at the home of a UC Berkeley toxicology professor, vandalizing, harassing, and shattering one of their windows. In 2009, activists set fire to the car of a UCLA neuroscientist who worked on rats and monkeys. The general opinion within the animal advocacy field is mixed when it comes to protesting methods. Jerry Vlasic, spokesman for the Animal Liberation Front press office, said he doesn't encourage anyone to commit murder, but... Listen to this, quote, if you had hurt someone or intimidate them or kill them, it would be morally justifiable. If you're interested in learning more about Animal Liberation Front, particularly the early days, I interviewed its founder, Ronnie Lee, in 2017. One big takeaway from my talk with Ronnie is his evolution as an activist as he got older. Anyway, that's the November 18, 2017 show on AnimalsTodayRadio.com. In contrast to Vlasic's comments, former Humane Society of the United States Chairman Eric Bernthal said back in 2014 that the Humane Society does not condone terror and destruction of property, but that perhaps researchers should use fewer animals in research and not assemble crisis communications teams. Many might align with Bernthal's words in that while protesting should not lead to physical harm against property or people, for that matter, the researchers on the receiving end should take a moment to consider why there's such heated protest taking place against them and why people are so upset on behalf of animals when research unnecessarily uses animals to test upon. When animals are abused and mistreated, we should feel enraged. We should feel angry. But we should figure out how to get our message across and take action in a way that does not bring physical harm or damage to anyone. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. Now to the trial. On October 8, 2022, the jury in Utah deciding Wayne Song and Paul Picklesheimer's fate asked why Wayne and Paul had to steal, quote, property from Smithfield Foods. They asked this question because Wayne told them to in his closing remarks at his trial, by the way he represented himself. Wayne writes in his New York Times op-ed, quote, I told the jurors that a not guilty verdict would encourage corporations to treat animals under their care with more compassion and make governments more open to animal cruelty complaints. However, jurors still had to grapple with the legal facts of the case. Technically, Wayne and Paul broke into the facilities on Circle 4 Farms and stole from Smithfield's Foods. They were being faced with burglary and theft charges of a theft that the accused posted footage of. It shouldn't have even been a debate. Wayne and Paul obviously stole from Smithfield Foods, and they posted the evidence online for everyone to see. And by the way, after the footage release in the search of the two piglets, the FBI raided sanctuaries and even sliced off part of a pig's ear in an effort to conduct a DNA match. And it's important to note, of course, that the piglet's worth to Smithfield Foods was about $42.50 each, according to the testimony of a state official. 
The prosecutor's reasoning that he presented the jury with was as follows. If you find a dented can in a grocery store, its damaged status does not mean you can, quote, rescue it and take it out of the store without pain. Obviously a Stanford Law graduate, but I digress. Wayne Swan commenting in his op-ed wrote, quote, the reality is every year we treat tens of billions of animals no better than dented cans, end quote. Justin Marceau, a law professor at the University of Denver and the author of Beyond Cages, Animal Law and Criminal Punishment, offers a lot of commentary on this case. He stated, prosecutors would have you believe this case is about burglary, but in reality, it's a case about whether people can rescue animals in dire conditions that are now commonplace in our food system. I can't think of a more significant animal law case in recent history, he says. At the outset of the case, the jurors felt set on their opinions that Paul and Wayne committed a crime. They stole. It was unlawful, and they should be punished. And yet, after eight hours of deliberations, the jury found for acquittal. They realized two important things. One, Wayne and Paul lacked the intent to steal. Their intent was to expose the living conditions of the pigs on Smithfield Foods property and to only rescue an animal if they had to. And two, the piglets clearly did not have significant value to Smithfield. Therefore, they cannot be the objects of a theft. Acquitting the two defendants was entirely unexpected, since not only did Wayne and Paul publish evidence of their theft, but because the jury comes from a rural part of Utah whose economy relies heavily on the agricultural sector and the business of companies like Smithfield Foods. It's as if the jury was saying, this is one rare instance where breaking the law on behalf of animals was not only necessary, but accepted and forgiven. So, to take a step back, when it comes to protecting or rescuing animals and the possibility or certainty of breaking the law, well, first of all, it's good to know what the laws are, but I would say that each person needs to decide for themselves what their values are and what they're willing to do. On the tame side of the spectrum, maybe it's just a little bit of protesting or petty vandalism, or maybe minor theft that doesn't hurt any property or individuals, or even more serious might be causing significant vandalism that would harm the company or the lab in terms of their profits or reputation. Beyond that, and you know I'm not endorsing this, might be threatening actual harm against an individual or truly physically harming a person. Now, as far as the philosophy here at Animals Today we feel that, in general, the most effective way to achieve improved animal welfare and protecting animals is through nonviolent persuasion and legal legislative means. We think these are the most effective ways to achieve long-term lasting change. But I will tell you personally, I have, in the heat of the moment, conducted acts of vandalism, including breaking into hawk cars to rescue imperiled dogs and trespassing to save abused and neglected dogs from private property when legal and safer ways failed. And uh, I just better leave it at that. So in certain respects, I have a lot of admiration for Wayne and Paul from Direct Action Everywhere. What they did was heroic. They held fast to their beliefs and took action to live out those beliefs, despite the very real personal risk that came with taking and rescuing those piglets. And clearly, the jury must agree with that statement on some level. And it's refreshing to see humanity win rather than corporate abuse of animals in this case. We'll be right back. 
I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Did you know rabbits are the third most abandoned pet in the United States? And Easter is the biggest culprit. Just say no to purchasing that cute bunny for Easter. This time of year, House Rabbit Society and its chapter's phones are ringing off the hook with people who bought a bunny on a whim and no longer want them. A better Easter gift for your child or grandchild is a stuffed toy rabbit or a chocolate bunny. Indoor pet rabbits live 8 to 12 years, making them a long-term commitment. To find out more, visit House Rabbit Society online at rabbit.org. That's rabbit.org. Welcome back. The largest frog on earth is the Goliath frog, also known as the Goliath bullfrog, and the giant slippery frog. They are found in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, and they can weigh up to 17 pounds or more, and their bodies can be more than a foot in length. The world's smallest frog, discovered in Papua New Guinea, measures a mere seven millimeters long and may be the world's smallest vertebrate. One reason I find frogs so delightful and fascinating is the huge variety they present. Now, another person who thinks a lot about frogs, a lot more than I do, I'm sure, is Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. Visit him at SaveAllFrogs.com. Welcome, Matt. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. Matt, I know you have a number of frog issues on your mind, so let's begin with frog populations. Are they really in decline? Yes. So there's around 5,000 frog species worldwide, and of that, over 30% are listed as at risk of extinction. So that's pretty significant. Um, and then several frog species have already gone extinct. So frog populations are very much under threat. And that is why, you know, we're seeing those statuses, like those extreme endangered statuses um, being applied to them because they are experiencing such a dramatic decline. And we talk about similar issues with other species all the time. Uh, why are frogs in decline? It's really an amalgamation of several reasons. Um, the first being the loss of habitat. So essentially, you know, if a frog loses its home, its odds of survival are not very good. So places like marshes and wetlands and meadows and woodlands, too many of these natural green spaces are being destroyed for developmental construction and agriculture. Now, where good habitat does remain, it's often degraded through pollution and contaminants and pesticides and oil and gasolines and frogs, being amphibians, are extremely sensitive to any kind of pollution or contaminant because they don't have scales on their skin like reptiles um, or fur like mammals. They don't really have any kind of armor or protection. They just have very delicate, permeable skin. So that makes them especially sensitive to those sort of substances being in their environment. And then a lot of frogs are killed on roads every year because a lot of roads crisscross between their habitats and what happens especially in the United States and Canada is a lot of the frogs um, that are breeding in the springtime they have to cross over roads to get to breeding pools and then unfortunately you have a lot of them being killed en masse and, and what's especially sad about that is that's the mature 
breeding portion of the population being killed. So not only are we losing those frogs, but because they're unable to breed because they're being killed, we're losing the next generation of frogs as well. And then another thing that happens is harvesting. So frogs are being captured from the wild to be sent off for the fishing bait trade and for food markets. And, you know, when we add all of these things up and then there's climate change and disease, it accounts for a massive number of frogs being lost every year due to these human-induced threats. So that's why our frogs are not doing very well and why so many are at risk of extinction. Okay, so populations are in decline. Matt, what cruelty issues do individual frogs face? Well, the first thing I want to mention in terms of that is that frogs are vertebrate animals, just like dogs and cats. And just like dogs and cats, they experience pain and suffering and cruelty. Unfortunately, there's that old misconception, you know, that old usage of word, wording, cold-blooded, and often people think of frogs being cold-blooded, therefore they don't feel pain. That's not true. First off, they're not cold-blooded, they're ectothermic, which just means their body temperature is reliant on the environment around them. They have to warm up or cool off um, via behavioral changes and and utilizing different areas in their environment. That's all that means. Um, So frogs are very capable of feeling pain and suffering, and unfortunately, they experience that with a lot of those trades I just talked about. So food markets, a lot of these frogs are sold live. Um, in some food markets, they skin the frogs alive and sell them that way. Like, you, like We're talking about really horrific things that happen to these poor animals. And then the bait trade, you know, frogs are sold live for fishing bait and then are, are stabbed with hooks and then tossed into the water. Now, now, say I was going on a radio program and I was talking about, you know, someone was using kittens or puppies and they were stabbing them with hooks. Like, there would be massive outrage. People would be appalled by such things. But I think because frogs being amphibians and, and there are those misconceptions about them slow, slimy and cold and cold-blooded, you know, people are often not as sympathetic towards them. So it's important to really make those connections that, you know, the frog is a living breathing vertebrate creature just like dogs and cats and other mammals that we're more familiar with and just like those animals they are experiencing a lot of cruelty from these trades that are exploiting them so not only do these trades are affecting their numbers in the wild and are a serious conservation concern but it is also a very very concerning matter in terms of animal cruelty like you know like I said we're literally you know there's trades set up where anglers are, you know, using frogs en masse and then stabbing them with hooks while they're still alive. So, and not only is that cruel to the frog, and not only do those bait trades deplete wild populations, but it also spreads disease, too. Like, frog populations are crashing because of um, two diseases in particular, ranavirus and chytrid fungus, and say they catch a batch of frogs and then ship them 100 miles away and you, to an area where the 
environment is healthy and disease-free, and then you have a diseased animal, and then it's cast into that wetland, then it's just spread those diseases around to previously unaffected areas. So you can get a pretty good idea how through those um, the shipping and unnatural movement of animals via these trades, how those diseases can be spread very, very quickly and, and to all these other places. So the bait trade and the, the trade of animals for dissections and food markets, these are all really triple-pronged threats. There are conservation concerns, there are cruelty concerns, and there are concern in terms of spreading the amphibian diseases to other areas. So those three in particular are very, very damaging. We are speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. The website is saveallfrogs.com. And Matt, we are going to continue this discussion because we're just scratching the surface here in an upcoming segment, and we'll look forward to speaking to you real soon. Sounds great. Stick around more with animals today after the break. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier too without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter, yes, I have another lightning round quiz. You know, we need another name for lightning round quiz. Yes. I've used that term a lot. So okay. Hurricane? Hope, hur- hurricane's good, <laughs> but it's also a, a mishmash or a hodgepodge or a yeah. jambal- jambalaya. <laughs> jambalaya, potpourri, yeah. alphabet soup. Okay. What names do you like? Uh, uh, mix, mix something or mix bag, bric-a-brac. How's that? Bric-a-brac. <laughs> okay. Here's your lightning round bric-a-brac. What is the first thing a caterpillar eats after it's born? Another caterpillar, its shell or grass? Oh, a shell. I'll go with shell. Whatever shell is means. correct. Right. Which of the following is a nocturnal animal? Chipmunks, gorillas, skunks. I'm going to say skunks. Skunks is correct. What bird that can't fly is the national symbol of New Zealand? Oh, that, oh, I know this. This, that is the little uh, kiwi. Kiwi. Very good. A group of fish is called what? A school. Yep. Which cartoon animal stuttered when he speaks? Oh, uh, not Daffy Duck? No. Okay, let me know. That, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> okay, yeah. Who's that? 
Was that Porky Pig? Porky Pig. Am I allowed to say stutter? Should I say no, no, no. speech language disabilities? <laughs> Stop. Is it correct to say Porky Pig is a he? Is Porky, Porky Pig a he? Pig. Yeah, he's a he. Yeah. Okay. Walruses eat all of the following except seals, plants, clams, worms. I'm going to say worms. Plants. Walruses are carnivores. They, they don't really like plants. How many clams can an adult walrus eat in one feeding session? A hundred, a thousand, or six thousand? I'll say a thousand. Six thousand. Oh, that's a lot of... How many compartments do cows have in their stomachs? Okay. They... I'm going to say four. Four is correct. Yeah. What was the name of the pit bull dog in The Little Rascals? Petey. Petey. What cartoon animal talked with a lisp? Uh, oh, what? That's the a other was a stutter. Porky Pig was a stutter. This is a lisp. Just tell me. Dave, tell me. <laughs> I taught ta- ta- a putty okay. tat. Whatever that is. I did. I did taught ta- putty. <laughs> Who's that? I don't know. Remind me. Tweety Bird. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah. know what kind of bird Tweety Bird Tweety was? Tweety was a parakeet? Yellow canary. Canary, oh, yeah. Boy, you, did you not watch Tweety Bird when you were a kid? <laughs> okay. In India... What farm animal is considered a sacred symbol of life that should be protected and revered? The cow. The cow is correct. What are baby goats called? Kids. Yep. What do you call animals that spend most of their lifetime on trees? Oh, jeez. That is some that's a real question I should know. They are arboreal? Yes. Is that the am I yes. saying that right? The word arboreal comes from the Latin word arbor, which means tree. Yeah. What kind of dog was Lassie? Lassie was a... Oh, that's... Lassie was a... That's easy question. Failing big time. <laughs> Go ahead. It is an easy question. I know. Collie. Of course. Okay. What disease is not caused by a fungus? Aspergillosis, anthrax, coccidiomycosis, histoplasmosis. And I'll go with anthrax. That's correct. Yeah. Aspergillosis is... Definitely a fungus. Yeah. Aspergillus is a common mold. Yeah. Coccidiomycosis, that's valley fever yep. caused by coccidia yeah, Cox- in South and Central America. And then histoplasmosis, that's histoplasma found in areas where there's like a lot of bird droppings. Mm-hmm. What kind of dog was Scooby-Doo? <laughs> Great Dane. Great Dane. Name another famous anthropomorphic dog who was a Great Dane. This was, by the way, in a prior quiz question. I want to see if you remember this. Uh, Was it not not, um, Astro? Yes, Rastro. Right. Say it. (laughs) Rastro. Rastro. Jetson's dog. What is the largest lizard in the world? Large. Oh, the, uh, the... Largest lizard is the Komodo? Yes. Is that what they call it? Komodo dragon. Dragon, gee. What animal is the closest living relative to the T-Rex? Chicken? Yeah. Lizard? Alligator? I'll go with chicken. Chicken is correct. Yeah. What cartoon bear is smarter than the average bear? (laughs) Yogi bear. Yogi bear. Who is Yogi bear's constant companion? Boo-boo. 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 And what kind of animal was boo-boo? Oh. A dwarf bear. A dwarf bear. (laughs) Am I allowed to say dwarf? No, don't say that. What is the collective name for a group of owls? 
Lookers, a master, or parliament? Jeez, I'll go with the parliament. Parliament is correct. What kind of dog was Snoopy? Snoopy the Beagle. That's right. Which cute little marine creature holds hands with their friends to keep themselves from drifting apart while sleeping? Okay. Oh, marine. Gee, I thought it was a little mammal at first, but not like seahorse, something like that. Sea otters. Sea otters, yeah. Okay, that's what I had in mind first, but... How many arms does an octopus have? <laughs> eight. I'll go with eight. Eight is correct. You thought it was a trick question, yes, didn't you? Yes. Okay. What is the name of the famous cartoon Woodpecker? Woody Woodpecker? Yes, Woody. How many... Am I allowed to say Woody? <laughs> <laughs> How many humps does a Bactrin camel have? Mm. I'm going to say one. Two. <laughs> Those are my choices. <laughs> A group of lions is called... A pride. A pride. Good. It's going to give you multiple choice. What are the names of the world-famous talking moose and flying squirrel? Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yes. Who was the moose? Ah, boy. I'm going to say the Rocky was the little one, so the moose was... Right. Rocky was the squirrel and Bullwinkle was the moose. Okay. What bird has the largest wingspan? The albatross. Yes, the wandering albatross. Gumby is an American (laughs) clay animation franchise. Gumby's primary sidekick and best friend's Uh, name is what? Pokey. Pokey. What kind of animal was Pokey? (laughs) Not a dog? A talking orange pony. Oh, yeah, pony. I thought he was a dog, too, actually. (laughs) No, I think he's a pony. It's a pony. Yeah, clay pony. He's a pony. Yeah, clay pony. True or false, some snakes are poisonous. Oh, poison. Is this a poison versus toxin question? I'm going to say false. False is correct. Some snakes stinker. (laughs) Some snakes are venomous, but not poisonous. So the difference between poison and venom is really whether an injection is needed, right? Oh, okay. Envenomation, that's a word. Right. Right. So you inject venom, right? Okay. And you can touch an animal that might be poisonous. Oh, got it. But snakes are not poisonous. But some snakes can be venomous. Right. What are the names of the three singing animated anthropomorphic chipmunks? Oh, gee, chipmunks. They are these chipmunks. Do you remember them? Like Al, Al something, Alvin? Yes. And that's all I've got for the chipmunks. Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. Oh, yeah. It's all coming back. Yeah, it's all coming back. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to end this quiz with a hard question. I'll be very impressed if you get this right. All mammals give birth to live young, except for two animals. Can you name these two? Oh. I can give you hints. They're mammals. So is a platypus a mammal? That's my question. I'm going to say kangaroo, live, give birth to live young. No, that's not right. Give birth... Restate the question, please. All mammals yeah. give birth to live young, except for two. Live Can young. you name these animals? Hmm. Live young versus dead young or eggs? Oh, eggs. Do any mammals lay eggs? Okay. Let me know. You, you know, your thought processes were good, though. I liked it. And you actually mentioned one of them. Okay. Is the right answer, platypus. Okay. Oh, platypus. Okay. Okay, so the spiny anteater, the anteater, oh. and the duck-billed platypus. Yeah. So 
anteater. I was going to give you the hint that this animal feeds almost exclusively on ants and termites. And then the platypus. Yeah. Platypus is really interesting. I'm going to tell you about the platypus. So you know it's a mammal. You know it lays eggs. Now I do. I wasn't really sure, I guess, just like 30 seconds ago. (laughs) These guys... You've never seen a platypus, right, Peter? Nope. Nope. So they are semi-aquatic. They're endemic to and found only in eastern Australia. These animals are often considered the world's oddest mammal. And they've always confused scientists by exhibiting an array of bizarre characteristics. For example, the platypus has a bill like a duck, a tail like a beaver, and they have fur like an otter. And unlike other mammals, they are toothless and have webbed feet. Pretty unique, huh? Truly. In fact, the animal is so extraordinary that scientists thought the first specimen was a hoax. Let me tell you a little story about the discovery of the platypus. Okay. So the first Westerner to describe a platypus, his name was George Shaw. He was a zoologist. And the story goes that in 1799, someone sent him the pelt and bill of a platypus. And he couldn't make sense of this and couldn't understand how this bill and pelt could have come from the same animal. In fact, Shaw believed the sender took the bill from a duck and the pelt from an otter or a mole and said, okay, here, figure out what kind of animal these came from just to mess with him. In fact, he cut, Shaw cut the pelt that he received with scissors in an attempt to try to find the stitches that attached the bill to the pelt, because he really thought this was a fake. So he and other scientists, including anatomists and taxonomists, really thought this duck, beaver, otter creature was a fake. And it ended up taking scientists like 100 years, in the Western world at least, to realize that platypuses are indeed real animals. Interesting. There you go. There you go. Okay, you did pretty good on the quiz. Did you get a grade for this one? Um. No, no grade. Pass. You, you pass. pass. This you is pass. a pass-fail course. And we learned something about platypuses. Yes. Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. One of the cruelest things a person can do with a pet is to abandon it. Yet it happens every day, and during Easter time, it's pet rabbits that are discarded by the thousands. Those cute creatures typically bought on a whim become a bigger handful to care for than people thought. House Rabbit Society, the largest rabbit rescue and welfare nonprofit in the world, urges people to stop buying bunnies for Easter. Just say no. A better Easter gift for your child or grandchild is a stuffed toy rabbit or chocolate bunny. Pet rabbits need a good amount of care, and as social animals, they should be housed indoors with you. They are also a long-term commitment as they can live 8 to 12 years. To find out more, visit House Rabbit Society online at rabbit.org. That's rabbit.org. back to the show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats, 
but I know who does. Robert Reed, medical director, VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed, I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house? Well, first off, you know, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, but I think it's important anytime you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. There are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk. And the exposure risk is different, and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, Um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic? Those are all legitimate questions. Um, that you should ask, and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment, so that if you're treating for ants, you, you just treat for ants. If you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees. You know, you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with it. Specifically, if you know, if you're having someone come over to your house uh, to to treat the area for pet for pests, then you, you of course want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, I mean, chew bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that, you, uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you, as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be able, they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or with a pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used, different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. But you, you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, uh, do, go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of. If you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where, you know, where herbicides are more likely insecticides or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well. Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here? I think that, again, it depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. 
uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and you yeah. need to make sure that if they're intended to do that, yeah. they don't, just because that's an, an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, but once it's dried, the, the chance that the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and, and licking them and infect, affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure, with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk. And what are the signs of toxicity? Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as rotenticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain. And this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim like a dog or a cat. Uh, and uh, the, the most common side effect of something like snail bait is probably seizures. Wow. And what's the treatment for toxicity? It depends, again, on what you're using. Um, it's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide a veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 800-858-7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. 
Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.